weekend? Yes. Yes? Yes, that's good. I'm glad. Uh, on Saturday morning, uh, Katie and I went down to Manly Beach really early. I like to go for a swim sometimes and enjoy the sunrise. And I'm not sure if you've been in Manly lately, you might have seen these people here. The War and Waste are doing some filming. And they had a hollow rubbish on, in front of the beach, in front of the Corso at Manly. Now, I'm a massive fan of the War and Waste. You know, Craig, the host, was part of the Chasers War and everything. You know, I was a big fan of that show as well. And so when I saw that they were doing some filming and interviewing people, I was like, okay, let's just stick around for a little bit. Maybe they'll want to talk to us. You know? Really hoping I'll get to meet Craig and be interviewed and be on the War of Waste. You know, I'm a huge fan. I've got the soft plastics recycling bin in our own house. We had our keep cups there this morning. And so it was great. And so hopefully he would come up to us and talk to us and interview us and ask us about you know, what they're doing and, and that kind of thing. And he did. And I was really excited about that. And so it was a great morning. So hopefully you'll see us on TV, on the ABC in a few months' time in the War of Waste. Uh, and yeah, you'll enjoy the show, I suppose. So this evening we are continuing our series looking at men and women and how the gospel impacts and shapes the way we relate to each other. And last week, Cliff began this series by looking at how the gospel works, works like a great social leveler. And so it doesn't matter who you are, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're a slave or if you're a master, if you're a Jew or a Gentile or any foreign person, or if you're a man or a woman, these things, these categories don't give you any advantage when it comes to to salvation, when it comes to being saved and belonging to Jesus. And so in the rest of this series, we'll now focus in on how the gospel impacts certain relationships between men and women in this world. And tonight we're going to start with marriage. Now, a couple of things before we start. Firstly, I'm very aware how this passage has been interpreted to cause great harm to women. Julia Baird's report into the church and domestic violence has proven that, I think. And what that means for me as a minister and a preacher of God's word is that we must work hard to get this right. We must work hard to understand this passage and make sure we interpret it correctly. Because any interpretation of this passage that allows any form of abuse, whether spiritual, physical, emotional, is wrong. And you might know someone who has suffered abuse because of a bad interpretation. And so I understand that any sermon on this passage will be difficult to hear for those who've had that experience or who know someone in that experience. And so that's you. My hope is that we can begin a conversation today that would lead to healing. Secondly, I understand that a lot of us here are very young. We're not currently married and probably not thinking about marriage. But my hope is that tonight... You will one day, you will still learn a great deal from tonight's sermon about marriage because you'll be looking to be married yourselves one day. And so also, you'll at least have friends who are married. And it's really important we can know how to help each other in marriage relationships and serve them well. And finally, one of the dangers of speaking on topics such as marriage is that I'm required to speak generally. And it's difficult to do this when so many of us have had different experiences of marriage, whether we're married ourselves or have grown up in our own families with different experiences. And the danger of that, of course, is that you might feel that your experience might be judged in light of the preacher's interpretation and understanding of marriage. 
<coughs> particularly when the preacher himself is a 20-something-year-old and has only been married for a year. So I understand that. And so therefore, I'll do my best to bear in mind that everyone has different experiences when it comes to the relationship of marriage. But I do think Ephesians 5 does speak generally to us, not to undermine our experience, but to challenge us and to let the gospel do its work in shaping what marriage looks like. For there is something pretty incredible, something about the relationship between Christ and his church that not only allows husbands and wives to flourish in marriage, but to show as an example how God is at work in redeeming the way men and women relate to each other as a whole. So my sermon tonight will have three main points. Firstly, we'll set the scene and give the context this passage is found in. Secondly, we'll look at then at marriage in Ephesians 5. And thirdly, we'll look at marriage in the modern world. So firstly, seeing the scene. We must understand the wider context of this passage to understand how we can read Paul well here. And I think Ephesians 1, verses 9 to 10, is the key text to the whole book. And it says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. What we see here in the gospel is that's not just a proposition or a worldview. The gospel reveals what God is doing, his action in this world. And that's to unite all things under Christ. In other words, it's to put everything right. Everything that's wrong is to put it back right again. And the way the church expresses this transforming work that God is doing in Jesus is through how they live in relation to each other, which our passage picks up upon in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now all of these things are familiar to us, you know, singing psalms, encouraging each other and building each other up. But then Paul introduces a new category here in Ephesians. Submission. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting because Paul uses what's called the middle passive form of the verb here. Hupotasomenoi. Hupotasomenoi. I think it's how you say it. You see, the word submit in the active sense already has a passive connotation to it. You know, you can't submit to someone without something happening to you in the first place. And so the active form of the verb already has an idea of something causing you to submit. So it's really interesting that Paul doesn't use that form of the verb. He uses the middle passive form to emphasize the fact that nothing so much is causing you to submit, but you yourself are reordering yourself towards submission. You yourself are voluntarily ordering yourself towards submission to another person. So it's not an enforced submission. It's not a submission that is externally caused by something. It's a submission that you have chosen yourself to do and enter into for someone else. 
And so for men and women in the church, mutual voluntary submission is the key characteristic that allows for love and service to happen for each other. And so when it comes to this section on husbands and wives, this is the context. All believers everywhere, including husbands and wives, must seek to live in unity by the Spirit, encouraging each other as they express the wisdom of God and what He is doing in this world to transform it into, through Christ. And so now Paul turns to specific relationships and instructions on how to live in those relationships. And the first one he looks at is the husband and the wife relationship marriage. And what we've seen so far is that they must mutually submit to each other. They must enter into this relationship of mutual submission. But because husbands and wives are not the same, they are different, this mutual submission will therefore look different. So that's where we come to our second point, marriage in Ephesians 5. Paul begins from the wife's point of view. Verse 22, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then the reason is supplied in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now two questions arise from this, I think. What is the nature of submission? And what does head mean? Firstly, what is the nature of submission? Paul uses the same word from verse 21 in verse 22, which emphasizes that there is no external cause in submission. Rather, it's an ordering of oneself towards submission. Voluntary, not in force. Now, this submission is defined according to Christ, not according to culture. Paul is not saying the wife must follow the stereotypes of the first century, submitting to a husband as it works and fits in a patriarchal, misogynistic context. Rather, Paul calls the wife to submit as it's fitting to the Lord. The wife's submission then must fit within the way God is uniting all things under Christ, with the expression of sacrificial love, humility, unity, gentleness and care. Therefore, the wife willingly and lovingly orders herself in this way towards her husband, not because she is forced to, but voluntarily so, because this is the work the gospel does on her and her husband for the good of their marriage. With the reason being that the husband is the, is the head of the wife, which leads to our second question, what does it mean by head? A common mistake interpreters make at this point, I think, is that they suggest a direct equivalence between Christ and the husband in their roles as head. Christ as head of the church and over all things in creation is innate to who he is himself. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is God. The husband is not the head of the wife in the same way. He is not above his wife or over his wife. He is not his wife's ruler or king. He is certainly not her owner, as was seen in the first century. He is her equal. And so when Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, he's showing an analogous relationship, not an equivalent relationship between Christ and the church. The two things aren't the same. 
but there is something about how Christ relates to his church that transforms the way the husbands relate to their wives. And I think it's this. Just as Christ's work and responsibility is to love his church and to cause her to be reconciled to God, being his saviour, the husbands have been given a responsibility for the spiritual formation of their wife and family, ensuring that she, along with the whole family, including himself, are working towards this spiritual growth and formation. Now, lest we once again suggest an equivalence between husbands and Christ, we need to be clear. Husbands are not the sole workers, nor the primary workers, of encouragement, love, and spiritual formation in their families and towards their wives. Jesus is the primary worker in our spiritual growth and formation. And he works through his word and his church. And so we're all called here to partake in each other's spiritual formation as we seek to encourage each other, to walk in the way of love, as Ephesians 5 says, to be willing to be gentle and to care for each other. We all take part in that work. And so therefore, wives must also take part in that work towards their husbands to seek their encouragement, their spiritual formation, and their growth. But what the analogous role of headship for the husband means is that he is primarily responsible for making sure that happens, making sure everyone in the family is working towards this way of love, is working towards the spiritual formation of the family. And if it doesn't happen, it falls on him as the husband, not the wife. The wife's submission to the husband is a promise not to disorder herself against the spiritual formation of the family. It's a promise to work with him, alongside him, as they seek to show how their marriage is being transformed by the goodness and the grace of God, how God is uniting all things under Jesus through them in their marriage. So as you might have picked up, much of the husband's role is implied in his instruction to wives. But I'll mention one more thing about the role of the husband before moving on. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The call here towards sacrificial love isn't to suggest that the wife doesn't need to be prepared to give up her life for her husband. Indeed, as, we, as you can see in, if, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, all believers are to walk in the way of sacrificial love. But I think here the radical call for Christian husbands is to be invested, interested, and attached to their wives as opposed to their first century equivalents. In the first century, husbands viewed their relationship with their wife as one of utility, to produce an heir, to keep the family name. Not one of purpose or affectionate love. But Paul is saying, because of what God is doing in Christ, husbands ought to love their wives, to be affectionate towards them, to be faithful to them. For this relationship is more than a means to an end. It's a relationship of purpose in seeing all things united under Jesus. Both the wife and husband play a significant role in fulfilling this purpose. So husbands must be fully invested in love 
so that he and his wife can work towards that purpose. But the question now is, how does this look and actually kind of happen in the modern world we live in? We live in a world that rejects outright this kind of relationship we see here in Ephesians. And if we're honest, we struggle with this passage, don't we? We look at it and go, how can this work in our world? It doesn't seem to be a quality here. We wonder, this is, just can't happen. This can't work. And we see so much abuse has happened in our world because people think they're believing what they read here as to mean that they can rule and to, and to cause their wife such pain. So how do we tackle this passage? How do we put this passage into action? One thing to note before we say anything else is the impact of sin in our relationships. As Genesis 3.16 reveals, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Sin has corrupted and disordered the way in which we relate to each other. The complementarity that exists between husbands and wives has become a frustrated rivalry. And whilst we are being made new in Christ and begun to put things right as the church of God, we still live in a world that is in disorder and therefore will be affected. Our relationships will still have the mark of the fall on them, even though we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, bear with one another in love. So how can we relate as husband and wife? Knowing that our relationship will still be the mark, have the mark of the fall on it, but also knowing something is different because Jesus' work on the cross. I think there are two things we can learn from in this passage. Firstly, it helps us to counter our tendency towards individualism. Individualism is the social air we breathe in the 21st century. Our society believes that we as individuals have the autonomy and the power and the capability to make it out on our own, that we are the sovereign ends to ensuring a good life for ourselves. And anything that tries to disrupt our autonomy, tell us what to do, and gets in the way of fulfilling our desires is an attack on our sovereignty. And so when the world reads a passage like Ephesians 5, or the whole book for that matter, our world feels like its autonomy is being attacked. They feel like they'll be oppressed. They feel that they'll lose their freedom and their sovereignty, their individuality. And even without this passage, marriage these days gets a bad rap as being a kind of inconvenience to individual autonomy. It's seen as settling down, giving up your freedom to do whatever you want. People get married later and later and later in life because they don't want to be locked down straight away. They want to live and experience life first. Marriage is kind of second-rate life, if you will. However, what they miss is that this passage does not remove one's individual autonomy and freedom. It shows how the gospel transforms the way we use it. Our freedom and autonomy as individuals is not geared towards the self, as individualism would have us think. It's geared towards the mutual submission of others, towards others as we seek to walk in the way of love as demonstrated 
in marriage. We're not forced or coerced into submission. We freely and willingly submit to one another in love. Why? Because the gospel transforms us to see that we need one another, that we are created individually, yes, yet we're also created in community as well. The marriage relationship, therefore, is one of co-interdependence. The husband and wife are autonomous individuals, and yet each need the other to flourish. Ephesians 5 seeks to redeem marriage from the view that it's simply a relation of social utility in the first century, or in our century, that it's a relation that restricts individual autonomy. Rather, it seeks to show us the one of the places individual autonomy thrives because it's geared towards its proper end in Christ, mutual submission in love. And what we see in marriage should overflow to the church as well as we seek to use our individual freedom and autonomy towards love and mutual submission as we seek to show what God is doing in this world, changing it and redeeming it to make it to bring us to salvation. Therefore, marriage is given a greater significance and purpose in showing us how God is at work in this world. That's the first thing. Secondly, it helps us to avoid the temptations husbands and wives face along the way. As I mentioned at the beginning, one of the dangers in a sermon like this is that I must speak generally. I understand what I say generally won't match up to everyone's experience. However, I do believe Ephesians 5 is speaking generally, and it's emphatic call for wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives does tell us something about what might be the temptation for husbands and wives in marriage. And so from this passage and looking at our modern world, and please forgive me, this is not your experience. I think the temptation for wives in not submitting is to resent their husbands. And the temptation for husbands in not loving is to detach from their wives. Carlson Beer released an ad a number of years ago where four husbands simultaneously uh, were in their home, walked out to the backyard towards their shed, told their wives, oh, we just need to go and fix something in the shed, fix this thing or get these tools or etc." as you kind of watch them all head out, you realize that all the sheds are kind of connected together in the corner of the backyards. And you're working, okay, that's interesting. Then as each one heads in, one of them pushes a button and all the internal walls of the sheds collapse down and reveals this one massive shed that kind of turns into this makeshift sports bar. And the dart table, dart boards come out, the pool table's racked up, the TV swings out, the cricket's on. The cupboard's open to reveal all these beers. They start flowing. And you, all of a sudden, you've got four blokes, four husbands in heaven. Yet they're completely detached from their families and their wives. Beer ads often have a way of communicating the abdication of responsibility for men, suggesting the good life is found with your mates at the bar, having a beer, not having a care in the world about anything else. 
And that is a great temptation for us as men and husbands to neglect our responsibility to our wives and our families, especially when we feel overwhelmed by it. Paul says, don't do this. Love your wife. Love your family. Be devoted to them. And take up your responsibility in ensuring you are all working towards the spiritual formation of your family. That is the good life. Not wrong to go to the bar and have a beer, but to do it neglecting your wife, your family, is not good. Paul says, don't do that. Love, be devoted, be attached because that has an eternal purpose to it as you encourage your family together to work towards the spiritual growth and formation, reflecting the care and the love of Christ and the love he has for his church. When the husband detaches, it's so easy for the wife then to resent her husband for not being responsible. He seems to take her for granted and to take what he has in his family for granted. Now, Janet Jackson's famous song, What Have You Done For Me Lately, captures this frustration so well, I think, for so many wives and so many girlfriends. I watched the video clip yesterday, and the start before the song starts, Janet and her friend are in a diner, and they hang out together, and her friend says to her, did you hang out with that guy? Rochelle knows, she knows. (laughs) And her friend says to her, you know, have you caught up that guy? And Janet says, no, he stood me up again. And her friend's like, oh, girl, you've got to get rid of her. him. You've got to get rid of him. He's a loser. He's a joke. And Janet's like, no, 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 he do so many nice things for me. I love him. And her friend says to you, I know he used to do nice things for you. Yeah. But what has he done for you lately? And a song, well, Janet has a moment and she realizes and the song comes forth. It's fair enough, right? People, you know, we, we can understand Janet in this situation. No one wants to be taken for granted. No one in any relationship should be taken for granted. And we can understand that that would breed resentment. However, the temptation is when, res- when this resentment goes unchecked and is not dealt with in a healthy and proper way. And this is why Paul emphasizes that wives submit to their husbands. Now what this doesn't mean is that wives are a doormat and can't challenge their husbands. Submission is not compliance. Paul is not telling wives to be compliant and he's certainly not telling husbands that they have the power to make the final decision. A wife's submission won't quash her frustration and resentment, nullifying it, saying it doesn't matter. No. But it will help her to order herself towards submission, seeking seeking to do her part in the spiritual formation of her family, giving it a space to be dealt with in a healthy way. Unchecked resentment will lead to relational breakdown, but the wife who continues to order herself towards seeing the family and husband grow spiritually, working for it herself, will deal with it in a healthy way for the benefit of the whole family. There are so many more things we could talk about tonight. How we as 
single people read this passage, how we as those who have a spouse who doesn't believe in Christ read this passage, how we who might know people in divorce read this passage. But time eludes us here. And if you're those kinds of people, I would love to talk to you afterwards and wrestle with you about how we read that passage if you're one of those people. But let me leave you with this. Marriage thrives when husbands take up their responsibility for spiritual formation and when wives order themselves towards the work of spiritual formation, resulting in creating a family that becomes a beacon of hope in a world otherwise confused about the family structures and units. A beacon of hope of God's goodness of God's grace to a world otherwise in darkness. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.